0: Give it up for baptism right now. What in the world is happening around this place? That was awesome. Hey, listen. Uh, just a little bit about baptism—how important it is, and why it tells the story of what's happening around here in the Bible. What we see is Jesus gives us this command to be baptized, and there's a couple of things that baptism symbolizes. Number one is this idea of being washed clean. You know, when you go under the water, it's this idea that you took a bath, right? And spiritually, you're washed clean, you're forgiven of sins. But it also is this symbol of Jesus. When Jesus went in the tomb, we go under the water and we say things like this: "Buried with Christ in baptism, but raised to." in a new way of life. So when we have baptism, it's just a symbol of new life. It's the symbol of God transforming people. It's a symbol of people starting over. And so for a church, like that is the scorecard. Like what we count on the scoreboard, this is one of them. It's a big thing for us. And so just amazing for us to be able to experience that. Now, one cool thing that happened last week is you may have noticed that last baptism um, that happened down at Elevate City, our campus in Sandy Springs, Um, uh, and, and as I explained, baptism two weeks ago, I got baptized actually after um, I was in seminary because the order of being baptized comes after you give your life to Christ, then you get baptized. There's nothing magical about getting you into heaven through baptism. And so once you make that step to follow Jesus, then you get baptized. And so I got to seminary and I realized, oh, wow, I haven't been baptized in that order. And uh, I had been baptized as a kid, but I hadn't, I hadn't been following Jesus. And so down in Elevate City, the pastor um, at the church where we're meeting is at First Baptist Sandy Springs. And the pastor there saw baptisms and then began to look back on his own life and reflect and realize he had not been baptized. So last week, First Baptist Sandy Springs, uh, where our Elevate City campus is meeting, he got baptized. And so I have a a little bit of his story. Would y'all like me to share it with you just a little bit? Let's just listen to this. So this is Pastor Mitch. Um, Pastor Mitch says, yes, I pastor a church. Yes, I'm a little older than some who've been baptized recently. Man, we like to say that our average age at Elevate City is 11. I mean, it is the millennial generation down there, y'all. It's amazing. It says, but the good news of the gospel is the limitless grace of God, any age, any time. When I was nine, my best friend George got baptized. And so two weeks later, I decided to do the same. The truth is, I didn't know Jesus until much later in life. As, I've, as I have experienced and heard the incredible stories of baptism week after week, I knew I needed to be obedient to take this step. But what will people think? What will people say? I'm a pastor. You see, the real question to answer is whose life is this? Will I keep it or will I give it to Jesus? I've known about Jesus all my life. I've even known enough to believe in him. But still, he wants my whole heart and life. That's why I'm here to be baptized. I, just, I don't just want to know about Jesus I want to live like my master. I want to be a verb for the gospel. That's good. An action for Christ. I'm deliberately choosing the lordship of Christ as the answer to whose life is this. It is his from now until I see him then. Like amazing story that's happening down there. And just to to be able to celebrate that with him and to be able to celebrate baptism here with us and live life as a verb. Um, And we want to be a church that lives as a verb. Amen, somebody. And so we're in this series today that we're starting called Come and See. Let's all say this together. Come and see. And the whole idea behind it is to really look at how the early church, the movement of the gospel started, how it maintained momentum. Because just for a brief Christian history lesson, the church started with how many people? one it was jesus right that's a good answer um, started with jesus spread to a few others roughly 12 then it spread to about 120 then to 3000 then to 30 million in the span of just three generations it is a remarkable sociological study of how fast the movement expanded now now why did it expand so fast what was the recipe for this expansion you know some would say miracles and miracles are very important i mean Somebody steals a storm and raises you from the dead, like, you're probably going to go in on that, right? (laughs) And, And miracles just make the impossible possible, and it teaches us that about God. But miracles aren't the driving force behind the movement. Another reason that's a minor reason is a new morality. You see, when Christianity was born in the Roman world, it was fend for yourself, It was take care of yourself, leave everybody else behind. There was no such things as charities and safety nets and people who cared. And so when Christians came along, they came with this selfless sacrifice and words became action. But this wasn't the driving force. You know, another thing that changed that Jesus brought was theology. It was a different way to see God, that God came to be with us. And what we learned is that beliefs became flesh in the person of Jesus, but this wasn't the driving force behind the movement that's kept the momentum going. The driving force behind the movement is the grassroots efforts of the early disciples and people like me and people like you to ask people to come and see what God is up to, to ask them just to come experience it. It's not to answer all their questions. It's not to make them feel better about their lives. It's just to ask them to come and experience what we've experienced. Now, you may be here today, and you're kind of on that. You're in the spiritually unresolved category. You're still exploring yourself. Every day, every Sunday, we obviously try to paint a picture of who Jesus is, how he's relevant to our lives, and the majesty and glory of who Jesus is. So I want to do that today um, in hopes of appealing to you to follow him. But also there are some of us in the room who are committed. We are in. We have followed Jesus. And the challenge for us today is to pick up where the early church left off and generations have left left off. And for us to prioritize the mission that God has given us to ask people and help them to come and see. So we're going to open our Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 1. Let's grab our Bibles. We're in John chapter 1. Now, I'm going to start out in verse 35, Uh, and and as you're getting your Bible, maybe on your phone or tablet or whatever, um, just a little bit about who John is, because there's a couple of different Johns in the story, so I need to kind of explain the characters that we're looking at today. So the John who wrote this is a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist, John the baptizer. John came and one of the things that he did was he baptized people. He actually baptized Jesus. Now the, one, the, the person who wrote this is not John the Baptist. Did I, say he, did I say that? No, I did, my bad. John the Baptist is in here. See, I'm confused. You're in bad shape. Um, John the Baptist is going to be the John that we see first. The John who's writing this was the early, one of the earliest disciples of Jesus. He actually was the youngest person to start following Jesus as a disciple. And uh, he is called the one that Jesus loved. He lived to be the oldest disciple of Jesus. He's writing this, his eyewitness account, about a guy named John the Baptist whose disciples followed Jesus. So with that said, let's jump into 35. The next day, again, John, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. See, John was a leader. He was a rabbi. John had followers. So he's standing there with two of his followers. He's probably teaching them, having a conversation with them. And then it says he looked at at Jesus as Jesus walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. So here's what John the Baptist is doing in this moment. He's got followers. He's like, that's the one you should be following. He's the one that you've been looking for. He's the one we've been waiting for. He was not interested in building his own platform, standing on a stage, or being a celebrity. He was interested in pointing at Jesus. And so the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, come and you will see. So this was the invitation of Jesus. Hey, come watch what I do, see how I live, listen to how I talk, come experience it. I'm not just gonna tell you some rules. I'm not just gonna hand you a teaching for you to follow. It's not a moral code, it's not a behavior list. Just come and experience me and then you'll know exactly what it is, who it is I am. So, so they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Andrew's important in this story. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So let's just talk about these two disciples for a minute. Remember, John the Baptist has two disciples. He tells them to follow Jesus. Now we know the name of one of them. We know the name of Andrew. We don't know the name of the other one. Like, why is that? Like, wouldn't you hate to be left out if that were you? Uh, he doesn't get his name mentioned, but Andrew does. Why the differentiation? Because of what Andrew did. He says the first thing Andrew did was find his brother, Simon Peter, and tell him to come and see. So think about this for a minute. Every time you see Andrew in the Bible, he's inviting people. Andrew invited Peter. Peter followed Jesus. Peter preaches at this this event that we call Pentecost it's one of the first events that happens after Jesus goes to heaven 3,000 people get saved and the early church explodes and you and I are beneficiaries of Adam inviting Peter excuse me Andrew inviting Peter now what would happen to us if Andrew hadn't invited Peter think about the links in the chain Andrew's the only one mentioned because he told people to come and see and we keep going in the story The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. Now notice this. Philip had just started following Jesus. Philip didn't have all the answers to the questions, and they ask him a question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's like, I don't know. You just come see for yourself. Listen, we, we don't have to have all the answers. Philip just proved it. So Nathaniel comes to see Jesus, and Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, he's saying to Nathanael, hey, you're a guy that tells it like it is. Like you're a guy who's true to the inmost of who you are. If you find truth, you're going to follow it. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So God had already been at work. In this this culture, sitting under the fig tree, probably what Nathanael was doing was praying, reading scripture and worshiping. And it says that Jesus saw him. So when Nathanael realizes that in his worship and his private time with God, God saw him, he knows something's up here. So he goes on to say, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're gonna see greater things than these. And so as we look at the lives of these guys, Nathaniel and Peter and Andrew and Philip, what we see is the same thing that we see in our lives, the same things that we see in other people's lives, is we are all looking for something greater than this. Like, aren't you looking for something more to your life? We all are looking for something greater to make a difference. We all have this this haunting in our soul that tells us there's something else out there. There's more to our lives. This is how we all live. It's the way I live and you live and people that we know. It's why we fall in love. If you think about, you know, we want to get married so that we can start a family or have a family. We want to be have kids so that, you know, we can leave a legacy in the world. We 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 fall in love. Man, we find ourselves attracted to things that we think is gonna fill this, this longing in our soul, things like money and sex and cars and houses and jobs and titles. We we love superheroes because we just gotta know there's somebody out there who's really strong and is really good and can and come to our rescue. Like this is the way the this is the story of humanity we know there's more and that's because God has put it in our heart and if God has put it in your heart he's put it in everybody's heart the people that you know your family your friends now what's really fun about this story is it gives six different phrases of who Jesus is based on what people are looking for in this story there's six different uh, phrases, titles, ways that God works based on how, what people are looking for in life. And I just want to walk through these six briefly. Uh, I think I've actually done complete sermons on each of them. But let's look at the first one. The first one is the Lamb of God. And in the, with the Lamb of God that Jesus is called, that John the Baptist calls Jesus, we find forgiveness of sin. We find the fact that our regrets, our shame, our guilt, the times we've mistreated people, the times we've run from God, man, it's washed clean. That there's no voice from the past that should have any power over us. We should never have to live in insecurity for any reason whatsoever. Now, here's a little example of this. I don't know if you saw this little video, it went viral this week, Uh, you probably didn't see it, Um, but did anybody see Will Smith slap Chris Rock at the Grammys, I mean, at the Oscars? So listen. Um, he, he, here's the thing about that. Will Smith wasn't acting out of anger. If you know anything about, if you've read anything about him, Will Smith was acting out of insecurity. Will Smith wants to be known as the hardest working actor in Hollywood so he can succeed. And if you read about his childhood, it begins to inform that he's living with the sense of insecurity that he's not good enough. And people you know are living with the same thing. Maybe you are. And the Lamb of God came. So we can have forgiveness of sin and that our past could not have control over us. The Lamb of God gives us forgiveness. You know, the second thing is rabbi. The second thing he's called is rabbi. They call him uh, teacher, where are you staying? Rabbi, where are you staying? And a rabbi in that culture, they would just kind of, they would have people come into their lives. They would show them a way of life. They would teach them how to believe, how to act, how to live out their faith. This is what what a rabbi would do. It was a way of life. And how many people need a better way of life? Just look around at our culture and and what it's producing, the way of life it's producing, the busyness, the anxiety, the loss of relationships, the time constraints and crunches, the depression, the, the suicide rate. And if we just look at the way of life that culture is offering, we got to know there's a better way of life. They found a better way of life. And we have a better way of life to show people. And he's a, he's a rabbi. The, the third thing is this idea of Messiah. Now, the nation of Israel had always been looking for a Messiah to come and deliver them. To solve their problems. To, to set them, to deliver them into Freedom, You know, one of my favorite verses says, I walk in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Have you ever heard of the term Messiah complex? Messiah complex. It's when somebody just wants to come in and solve all the problems. They want to come riding in on their white horse. Like, this is generally what husbands do, don't we guys? Like, does your wife ever just give you a problem? You're like, let's just fix it right now. I mean, that's what Will Smith did. Um, but sometimes... They don't want you to fix their problems, do they? My wife and I will have this conversation. I'll be like, okay, is this a fixing conversation or a listening conversation? And sometimes it's a listening conversation, but a Messiah comes to solve problems, to lead us into freedom, power over addiction, saving a failed marriage, helping through loneliness. This is what a Messiah comes to do. You know, the fourth thing that we see, It talks about, it was written about in Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. So there are hundreds of prophecies that were written in the Old Testament, hundreds to thousands of years before Jesus was born that Jesus actually fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies about himself. And so when they saw that, they knew that he was the one. It gave credibility to the movement. It was the one that they'd been expecting all their lives, the one that they had read about and heard about from their parents and their grandparents for generations, and he showed up. That's why it was so important to them. You know, the fifth one, it was the king of Israel. The king of Israel is used. And all of us are looking for a leader we can follow, aren't we? And we're all looking for a leader that we can trust. We're all looking for a leader who will be out for our good and not their own agenda. You know, part of that is uh, part of the problem with that is we tend to try to put that type of faith and trust in an elected official who's not, whose job is not to really necessarily care for us. It doesn't mean they're all bad, but we've seen some of the problems that come when we put our faith in an elected official. We want to go to work for people who can lead us well. We're all looking for a leader. They were looking for a leader and they found him in King Jesus. And then finally, the last one, the sixth one. Son of man. This is the title that Jesus referred to himself more than any other title. And it's not even close. Son of man. And it just means that he identifies with me. That Jesus showed up in the flesh... He suffered the same way we suffered. Man, he watched people die and saw that pain. He understood what it was like to physically suffer when he was executed on the cross. The Bible says he was even tempted just like we are, yet without sin. He came to identify with us, to be with us. There is no other religious movement that has this claim. Every other religious movement has a God who is up there, out there, over there, not necessarily close. And so what these brothers and disciples were looking for is the same thing that you're looking for and the same thing that our friends are looking for. They're looking for the person of Jesus. Everything comes together in the person of Jesus. We're all looking for something greater. We all want to live our lives for something greater. Let me ask you this question. What's the greatest thing that you're pursuing right now? If you had to ask yourself this question, if you were to look at your time, how you're spending your time, uh, what wakes you up in the morning, what you go to sleep thinking about, what wakes you up at 2 a.m. that you're worried about, the way that you're spending your money, the things that you're reading about and researching, what would you say is the greatest thing you're pursuing right now? And is it temporary or is it eternal? Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue some things that are temporary, but we can't spend our lives on things that won't last. We can't build these empires where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. We can lay up treasures in heaven, invest in eternity. And so when we do that by investing in people, you see, why would, why would Philip want to invite Nathaniel? And why would Andrew want to invite his brother Peter? Peter? It's because they had a vision for their lives and they knew what they were looking for. And they had a vision for their lives that maybe just maybe they couldn't see yet, but they knew if they experienced it, they would get there. You know, Psalm chapter 34, verse eight says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Like this is the invitation. When we ask people, when we share our faith with them, when we try to include them, and we're just saying, just, just come and experience what's going on. You know, 82% of people, 82% of people will accept an invitation to church. 82% of our friends, 82% of our, people, of our family, eighty percent of our neighbors, they'll actually accept an invitation to church. That is a very high mark. Like if you knew you had an 82% chance to win the Powerball, like you'd leave right now and go buy a ticket. It's a very high percentage, and it's just this idea of word of mouth word of mouth. You know, we, we, we're a culture that we live off reviews, don't we? If you're gonna go buy an appliance, what do you do? You look at Consumer Reports. If you're going out to lunch today, what are you gonna do to a restaurant you've never been at? Look at that Yelp review, I'm gonna see. Is it four, is it five? What is it, three and a half, mm, not so good. Like, we're gonna look it up. Like, we get input from other people. <clears throat> How many of you guys have ever had Sriracha hot sauce? Handful, right? Like, so, so real quick, Sriracha, $150 million company, has experienced double-digit growth every year of its existence and has not spent $1 on advertising or marketing. Why? Word of mouth. Word of mouth. Grassroots efforts. That's how it works. And we trust people that we know when they tell us something good. We trust them. We'll, We'll buy what they buy. We'll try what they're trying. We'll watch what they recommend. And we're inviting them into this life-changing relationship with God. Why is it that 82% of people would say yes? Think about it. Why would they do that? Why is that number so high? Because they're thirsty. That's why. Just like you, just like me. There's an invitation uh, that I love over in, um, th- over in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 55. And just to read that, it says that, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And they're looking at our lives to understand what we have. You see, Jesus has written a review for his church. And that review is in your life and in my life. It's not on Yelp. It's not on Google. It's in our lives. Like, What do people see when they see your life? Like when people look at your life, how you operate, how you think, how you spend money, how you talk. Like what is it that people see in your life? It's, it's a hard question that we need to look at and examine. Do they see hope and love and patience and peace and generosity? Or do they see judgment and harshness and anger and frustration and insecurity? And so we need to be the kind of people that when they look at us, they recognize, hey, we're not perfect. But we know who is. And we're going to point them that way. Hey, what will people see when, they, when they're invited to attend a church? When you invite someone to come here, what what is it that they're going to experience? What are they going to come and see? Well, life changed for one. Baptism, come on, somebody. Like, I I realize that the church, especially now, and there's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's lots of there's lots of information out there in the press about the downside of the church and everything that's gone wrong and manipulation. You just gotta remember the source of those things. The church has stood the test of time. It has marched forward from the very first century. Man, God has always been using His church to change lives, to influence people, to save marriages, to release addicts, to release people from stress and anxiety, and save them from suicide. The gospel has always marched on. It has never shrunk back. The church has never gotten smaller. It's always expanded and it always will because this is God's vehicle to take the message of his love for people to the world. Man, the church is never going to shrink back. It has the message and the mission. Man, what are people going to find when they come to church? Man, they're going to find a God who loves them. They're going to find living water that will wash them of their sins. They're going to find peace that passes understanding. They're going to find joy that comes in the morning. And they're going to find a light in the darkness of their lives. They're going to find the bread of life that will sustain their soul. They're going to find wisdom to navigate the difficulties and the complexities of their life. They're going to find hope that is an anchor for their soul. They're going to find a resurrection that will beat death. Like this is what we're inviting people into. And we can never back down from that. What I love about this story is that Nathaniel just wasn't taken off guard by Philip coming and asking him. Like God had already prepared the way. God had already gone ahead. Because when Jesus said, oh, I saw you over there under the fig tree, Nathaniel knew God's already been working in my life. Philip knew, oh, God was already working in my life. Have you ever had this experience where maybe you called, somebody came to mind, you called them or texted them, and they were like, I was just thinking about you. I, I can't believe you just called me. I was thinking about you. I had a dream about you last night. And because God has gone before and what has happened, what happens in our lives and the reason why 82% of people are open to an invitation, God's already gone before. God's done the work. Jesus has already been there. The question is not, is God going to be there? The question is, am I going to show up? That's the question. And so Nathaniel knew, knew that God had been at work in his life. Let me ask you this question. Who should you invite to come and see? I put a name on it. It's not just this general idea. Oh, we are going to do it. No, I am going to do it. I've got names I'm going to put on a card. I've got names I'm going to pray about. I've got people that I'm going to invite. Like, who are you going to invite? George, Fred, Bernadette, William, Herbert, Susan. Who is it? Like, what's the name? What's the face that comes to mind? Who's the coworker you need to invite? Who's the friend, the neighbor? Who's the, 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 who's the customer that you need to invite? Like, who is the person that you need to invite? There's somebody. And that's the reason why we create and we hand out invite cards regularly. Number one, it's just to, I just keep them around. It reminds me, because how many times does it just fall off of our radar that people need to know? We are busy people, we got things to do, we got priorities. And sometimes it can fall off of our radar. So a card just helps remind me. It also is an easy way just to give someone times and location of where we're meeting. And so for Easter, like who, who, is, who is it for you? Like who is the person that you're going to invite? Listen, one of the things about God and the way God has created us is that we want to be seen. We want to know that people care. We want to know that we matter, that we added value. Hey, have you ever bought someone maybe a gift or done something nice for them and they didn't say thank you? And you're like... They didn't say thank you. And this is what you generally say. I didn't really want them to say thank you, but they didn't say thank you. Which means what? You want them to say thank you. You want to be noticed. You want to be seen. You let somebody in in traffic, you at least want them to wave and say, appreciate that. Appreciate that move. We want, we have this desire to be seen. That's because God's put it in us. And the way people will know that God sees them is when we see them. The way that people will know that God sees them is when we see them. And the way that people will know that we see them is when we invite them. There's a cool story that happened down at our Elevate City campus. about a girl who, when she got out of high, she kind of grew up following Jesus and then got, went to college and kind of went her own way. Like a lot of people tend to do when they go to college. It's a bad idea, guys. I'm just telling you, don't suffer like what all us idiots did. Okay. Stay following Jesus in college. But so she kind of got, she got away from it. And uh, as she did, she tells her story that she started trying to find her identity and you know, uh, the party scene and boys and social clubs and all of this kind of thing. And then she just kind of came to this point in her life where she realized this was not the right way and she tried to come back home. So she began to look for a Bible-believing church in the area where she lived in Sandy Springs um, so she could hopefully maybe find what's going on in her life. And so someone from this campus actually reached out to her to tell her, hey, you live down there, we have a campus down there. So she goes down there, she gets baptized and she gets on fire. And here's what she has to say. She says, this church has changed the way I view everything. It has set my heart on fire for Jesus. Here I feel loved, seen, known, and encouraged. I have community that pushes me and grows me. I have seen the power of prayer transform my life. I look back and I see God's hand woven through it all. Everything leading up to where I'm at now, on fire for the Lord and wanting to yell it from the rooftops of who he is, what he's done for me, and how he's chased me down and never once given up on me. Man, that is the power of the invitation. See, the power of the invitation is the power of influence. This is how we can have lasting impact, eternal influence. It's just the power of just a simple invitation. Now, every every Sunday or most Sundays, we give an invitation. And we refer to it as, I raised my hand. How many of you guys have heard of this? I raised my hand. Hopefully all of you, right? You've been here a little while. Now, now it's a little different than maybe what you grew up going. I grew up in a culture that did the altar call. How many people grew up in an altar call culture where you have people walk down the aisle? Now, I can remember when we started Stone Creek and we weren't doing the altar call and we got criticized for it. She's like, you're not giving an invitation. Like, no, 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 no. We're giving an invitation. It's just not an altar call. That actually is new to the scene. Altar calls started at Methodist camp meetings back in the 1800s. They would have camp meetings in rural areas that didn't have a church, and then they would call people forward, and they had basically a sheep pen where people would go, and they called that their altar. And so people would go there, and they would pray to commit to follow Jesus. And then Charles Finney in 1875 made the walk the aisle uh, popular, and then Billy Graham took it a whole nother level, as they say. And so that's where that began. It's relatively new. Now, the way that we do it here, and it's extremely important for us to know as part of a culture, our culture, is we, we call it, I raise my hand. So almost every Sunday at the end, what's going to happen is I'm going I'm to share the gospel. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. I'm going to say, hey, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to ask people to raise their hand. Now, I say every head bowed and every eye closed. And for those of you that don't, I see you, just saying. And so does the Lord. But it's it's such a momentous moment. It's life-changing. That we want to have a way to mark the moment. So we do, I raise my hand. And so I'll count to three. I'll say, if that was you today, you prayed to follow Jesus today. I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in the air. One, two, three. Raise your hand. Let's make eye contact. And that's what happens. And that's why we do it. Now, some of you, you may be like, yeah, we, we do it every week. We get it. We're not going to raise our hand. Can we just move on with this part of the service? Because we've done this before. Hey, if that's you, okay, if that's you, if you're not going to raise your hand because you already have, and you're thinking, oh, I don't know what to do in this time, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. And this is going to be extremely powerful. I'm going to ask you in that moment when I'm praying, when I'm going through that, what I'm going to ask you to do is help. I'm going to ask you to help. And I'm going to ask you, you start praying during that moment. You start praying for people around you that have never raised their hand. People who need the Lord to step into their life. People who need to see the gospel clearly. People who need to put down some things in their life that they're holding on to to follow Jesus. We should just pray that together. Can you imagine... Can you imagine the power of hundreds of people in a room praying for one specific thing, even for just one moment? Can you imagine that one day you're sitting out there and you've brought your neighbors to church and you're thinking to yourself, I hope they don't talk about money because that's the worst thing that could happen. And then you begin to experience worship. And then we get to, I raise my hand. And then you begin to pray. And then out of the corner of your eye, you feel your neighbor move and he raises his hand, or she raises her hand. Like, what would that feel like? Last week at, during baptism, I got to baptize my neighbor, and it was amazing. That's the kind of church that we are. We have a mission and a vision. And one, part of my job, part of my job is to be sure we always stay clearly focused on the mission. Because when churches or organizations, when they begin to turn inward, is when they begin to die. Denominations they begin to die. It doesn't mean that we don't take care of each other. It doesn't mean that we don't, we don't disciple and look forward and try to form our lives into who Jesus wants us to be. But we always have to maintain this outward look because that's what Jesus did. And that's part of what I will be held responsible for when I stand before the Lord. And because of that, every 12 to 18 months, I like to read this fable that kind of illustrates what could happen if we took our eyes off of Jesus and put them on ourselves. So today, I just wanna close out our service by reading this, fa- this fable. <clears throat> it says, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut. There was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves. They went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area, they wanted to be associated with this little life-saving station. They gave their time, their money, and they supported the work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude, poorly equipped, and small. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and they put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated beautifully, furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going on sea to life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration. And there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast. And the hired crews brought back boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were refugees. The beautiful new club was in chaos. Immediately, the property committee hired someone to rig up a shower house outside where victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming in. At the next meeting, there was a split in club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt it was unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. A small number of members insisted on life-saving being their primary purpose and they pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. The small group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. And as the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of its passengers drown. Not here. Not in this place. Not us. Man, we have the message of the world. People are thirsty, and they're dying, and they're struggling, and they need someone to just invite them to come and see. And that's us. Let's pray together. God, just thank you um, to be able to see life change, to be able to see baptisms, to be able to hear stories, to be able to read about them. God, to see the movement multiplied in Sandy Springs. And God, just grateful for your grace upon us as a church, that even through COVID and even through difficulties and ups and downs of life, God, you've just continued to build your church. And we're just grateful. And God, we're just committed to be in a place that says, come and see. God, we, we, we're, we're just grateful and we're committed to being a place that invites our friends, God, where we share the gospel. We give people an opportunity just to experience who it is that you are and what you want in their life. You know, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe some of you today in the picture I've painted of the majesty and the worth of Jesus, you want to follow him today. That's your step today. I just want to lead you in a prayer. And today is the day you're going to raise your hand. I just want to lead you in a prayer right now that will help you and make this commitment to follow him, this moment in your life. And if that's you, just repeat after me in your own heart. Dear God, I've gone my own way. I've sinned against you. I'm thirsty. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and grant me a new life. You know, the Bible says that if you've done that, and when you do that immediately, you're a new person. Old things have passed, new things have come. You're going to see differently. You're going to begin to grow differently. You're going to have different priorities. And if that's you today, I want to help you mark this moment today. And I'm just going to invite you. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand and I'm going to invite you just to make eye contact with me And you can know that everybody around you, they're already praying for you. God has prepared the way for you today. So on the count of three, if you would, I'm going to just invite you to raise your hand and make eye contact with me. One, two, three. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. That's amazing. Thank you, Lord. And God, just help us over this season as we experience the resurrection. As we remember what we're about, as we remember the main point, God, as we focused on what you've done, Lord, that the resurrection would be central in our lives by how we serve other people. God, you would just move in in our normal course of life to orchestrate relationships and text messages and phone calls and interactions, God, that we would look at that and say, that had to be the Lord. That had to be God going ahead of me and going before me. God, help us to be able to know what to do and what to say and how to say it. But God, help us to never graduate from this simple invitation. Hey, come and see. Thank you for being good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.